0: You're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Depression seems to be everywhere. One in 10 American adults currently take antidepressants, the majority of which are not prescribed by psychiatrists. The FDA has placed increasingly severe warning on antidepressants. What is a non-psychiatrist to do? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Gordon Robinson. Dr. Robinson is a psychiatrist boarded in adult and geriatric psychiatry, practicing in St. Louis, Missouri. Dr. Robinson is highly regarded as a speaker on psychiatric issues and gives hundreds of lectures every year to fellow physicians. Today, we are discussing what needs to be done before writing the first antidepressant prescription for a patient. Dr. Robinson, what do you think is most often overlooked when antidepressants are initiated?
1: When you're prescribing an antidepressant, and that's what we're talking about a little bit today, what, what do you really want to know about patients before you start prescribing an antidepressant? We're going to talk about a lot of the details, but the broadest sense, it's, it's kind of simple. You want to know why you're giving the antidepressant, so you've got to have an indication. You always want to have some assessment in regard to whether a patient is bipolar, whether they're suicidal, and in women, pregnancy status and women of childbearing years. So that's the shorthand version. We're going to fill in a lot of details, but I don't want to get lost in the details. I want to keep it kind of simple because I don't want this to be hard for the physicians to be prescribing these medications, and they they really should not be. Because the medicines we've got today, gosh, are, are just wonderful. I don't know about everybody who's listening, but I'm old enough to remember the bad old days where all we had were tricyclic antidepressants, and I remember... When the SSRIs first came out, and it's a different world we live in, it really is. And one of the reasons these drugs are being prescribed just extensively and that the prescriptions for antidepressants have climbed every year since the SSRIs were introduced in 1988 is because they are easier drugs. They're simpler drugs to use, and that's something that that we need to remember before we start talking about all the complications.
0: That's a great point. I'm also old enough to remember that uh, tricyclics were the number one prescribed med. And back in the old days, we even felt really comfortable using MAO inhibitors.
1: That's exactly right. And just as an example, Uh, when I was in residency, and that is all we had were the tricyclics, it was rare that a week went by that we weren't consulted on the medicine service, where they'd say, well, this patient is really, really uh, depressed, but they're also physically sick, and we're consulting you because we want to know if treating them will help them or kill them. Now, when's the last time any of us had a consultation with the newer agents? Because you just don't need that. There's so much less toxin, and they're uh, so much safer. And, and you're right, I'm also from that last generation who used the MAO inhibitors, kind of regularly now. They were never that popular, but yeah, they, they were used significantly.
0: Well, let's take a step back and talk about the newer antidepressants and what some of the indications are for using them.
1: First off, whenever you're assessing for depression, and I think that in some ways the primary care guys can be better at ruling out physical causes than we do because that's where they start. That's In general, by the time someone gets to my office, They know they're depressed or anxious, and I do, but when they start in the primary care physician's office, they typically go in for something like fatigue or constipation or some other physical symptom associated with depression. So where they usually start, and it is absolutely the right place to start, is ruling out physical causes of depression. The one disease that doesn't always have a lot of physical manifestations, but often can present as depression, would be hypothyroidism. To be honest, it used to be the standard of care that everybody got thyroid studies when a patient presented for depression. And then there were some studies that indicated, gee, that really wasn't cost-effective. In general, I think it's it's a good idea to get them, and especially since you're going to check thyroid studies annually or something like that, just for routine screening. If someone presents with depression, I think it's reasonable to do a thyroid screen. The other thing I would mention is in addition to ruling out physical causes, there are certain symptoms that help you rule in depression. The idea of this is, if you have somebody who's physically sick, many of the constitutional symptoms of depression are the same as the physical symptoms. So if they have coronary artery disease, for example, they may have a lot of fatigue, and depression, of course, causes fatigue as well. So that's not going to be a good symptom to look at if you're trying to check for depression. However... Certain symptoms are good for ruling in depression, such as pathologic guilt. I don't care how bad someone's heart is. In general, it doesn't make them feel guilty or express a lot of guilt for things that they're not genuinely responsible for. Uh, Extreme negativism and hopelessness. Cancer patients often have hope, even if they expect that their cancer is terminal. And this negativism where depressed patients, you can talk to them just and everything is negative. And I'll never forget, one patient came in with her husband and he he had brought her in. And when I asked him, well, why did you do this? He said, I brought home a bonus, which after taxes in December was $13,000. And I came home and I was excited. I told my wife and she said, oh, this is terrible what do we do with the money? Should we invest it? Should we pay off bills? I don't know what we'll do with this money. He said, oh my gosh, there's no way that's normal. And that's exactly right. This this pervasive negativism. If somebody's physically ill, that doesn't necessarily mean everything is negative or that everything coming out of their mouth has a negative spin. Low self esteem and suicidal thoughts. When present, coronary artery disease does not cause suicidal thinking or do- Diabetes does not cause suicidal thinking unless they're associated with depression as well. So, those symptoms guilt, negativism, hopelessness, low self esteem, and suicidal thoughts will help you rule in depression. Now, if we're going to give a patient an antidepressant, one of the things we're going to want to do is have a reason for doing so. Now, there are a number of approved indications, approved meaning approved by the FDA, of various, and I'm not going to go into the different antidepressants, which is approved for which, but Different antidepressants are approved for depression, anxiety, including generalized anxiety disorder, obsessive-compulsive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, panic disorder, bulimia nervosa, social anxiety disorder, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, and the one people don't remember often, but we've got to add to the list, is smoking, because bupropion, of course, is approved for smoking cessation. In addition to the approved indications there are a lot of non-approved indications, and if you're going to use an antidepressant for a non-approved indication, you're absolutely allowed to do so. But you still want to document, or and, and certainly have in your mind what you're giving them and why. The non-approved indications, and, and this list is not exhaustive because there are all kinds of, of things. But the kind of the more common ones would include a bipolar depression. None of the antidepressants have actually been approved for bipolar depression, and the overwhelming majority have never even been studied in that setting. Impulse or anger control, commonly used there. How successful that is, kind of debatable, but it's used a lot. Personality disorders, anorexia nervosa, chronic pain, especially, uh, for example, low-dose amitriptyline, which is effective for chronic pain, but of course it never got an indication for chronic pain premature ejaculation in the case of the SSRIs, and uh, again, other indications as well. If you've just
0: joined us, you're listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Gordon Robinson. We're discussing what to do before starting a patient on antidepressants. So, Dr. Robinson, what diagnostic pitfalls do you see before people start antidepressants?
1: To be honest, I think the biggest pitfall may be one of, of time, may, namely that everybody, just in all facets of medicine, are, we're under increasing time pressures. Uh, we have you know, reimbursement is down. The amount of paperwork and approvals and such are way up. Primary care physicians, many of their offices have one or two people who do absolutely nothing but just deal with insurance issues, including things like referrals. I remember back in the day, if somebody wanted to be seen by a gastroenterologist, you just referred them. And now, of course, many of the primary care guys have to approve that, fill out the paperwork, find out whether the guy they want to send them to is in the the network. And then they have to actually be the one who approves it and notifies the insurance company that it's all very time-consuming. So we're being asked to do more. And at the same time, the average amount of time in a patient visit is less than it was in the past. The most common pitfalls I see probably have to do with screening and not screening for everything. And I don't know how that's possible. You can't screen for everything, and I, I don't know that you absolutely have to. Certainly at, at every visit, you don't. One clue that you may need to screen more is if things aren't working. So if you try a treatment and they're not working and they keep coming back, start looking for other things. And the most commonly missed diagnoses I see, number one, is substance abuse. When I first got out of residency, my first partner, who was 60-something at the time, sat me down, and in that we had the talk about, oh, gee, you're coming into the practice, and here's what you need to know. And what he said is, in all his years of psychiatry, that the diagnosis he had missed most was substance abuse. And that, in his experience, when he was treating somebody who was depressed, and they kept their visits, and they came and apparently were taking their medicine and such, and saw them for a long period of time. If things didn't work out, the most common diagnosis he saw was substance abuse. And that's absolutely right. Alcoholics, can you help alcoholics who are depressed and continue to drink? And the answer is sometimes you can, but there's no way it's ever going to work as well as if they actually stopped drinking. Now, why do we miss a diagnosis of substance abuse? That's really complicated. Some of the time, we don't ask. Some of the time, we don't want to know. And a lot of the time, they lie like rugs. I can't tell you how many times I've followed people for a while, and then the family will ask to have a meeting with me. And uh, I'm happy to have that input, so I sure thing, you know, with the patient's approval, absolutely set up a meeting, and they come in, the first thing out of their mouth is, I don't know if you know, but. Now, as soon as they say that, I can't think of any instance where I actually knew whatever the information was that they were going to tell me. So when they say, I don't know if you knew, but, I didn't know. And invariably, some I don't know if you knew, but he drinks a six-pack every night when he gets home from, from work. And the little light goes on, and it explains a lot. So family, if you have contact with the families, if what you're doing isn't working, that would be something to, to ask a little more on. The other common diagnoses I see that are, are referred to me and, you know, what makes a difference? What do I do that's a little different? ADHD. My gosh, it's a very pervasive disorder. And it wasn't diagnosed 30 years ago as commonly as it is now. 30 years ago, people were not as familiar with it. So there are a lot of adults with ADHD who were never diagnosed as kids. Uh, a lot of them that I see, the clue to that, by the way, is their kids have ADHD. But they weren't diagnosed with it. So as adults, they don't necessarily know that they have it. And if somebody has ADHD and depression, and the two are comorbid an enormous amount of the time, the results you're going to get are a lot better if you treat both the ADHD and the depression. So that's an important one to diagnose because your treatment of ADHD is different than your treatment of depression.
0: I want to thank our guest, Dr. Gordon Robinson. We have been discussing what to do before the antidepressant begins, I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.